Welcome to another episode of the Founder Fundamentals Podcast. My name is Rahul Kumar, and today I have the pleasure of sitting down with Thomas McLeod, CEO and co-founder of Omni Rentals and Item Management. With over 10 years experience growing innovative companies, he previously co-founded PageLime, a SaaS CMS used by over 30,000 designers worldwide, and the mobile app lab Imaginary Feet, launching and marketing 15 plus apps to over 10 million users. With a degree in audio engineering from American University, Tom's first venture was the successful till it wasn't recording studio Heavy Syndication, which quickly transitioned to become a web design firm with the changing music industry. Having recorded over 500 songs, he still consults on the occasional music project. Thanks for joining us, Tom. Hey, happy to be here. Tom, you seem to have a strong interest in music. You've recorded over 500 songs. What drew you to becoming an entrepreneur? Where does this drive for business and commerce come from? Oh, man. Uh, that's a great question. I think it started really young. When I was in, I want to say like first grade, there were snap bracelets were like a craze, like the metal bands with the nylon over it and you'd flip it on your wrist. And my mom was a public school teacher in Newark, New Jersey. And she saw them trending around all of her kids and nothing. I was at this school called Lynn Hill uh, in Plainfield, New Jersey. And she was like, I think this might like happen in your school. Are they doing this? And I was like, no. And, and suddenly I started seeing kids with them. And my mom became my first angel investor and bought like a 50 pack. And I, went, I sold them to the kids in my school. Like I was like, you should get these, check them out. And I actually like, I, I guess it was kind of like a hustler type thing more or less. But like I was selling snap bracelets to the kids in, 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 in class. And my mom actually had a kid in her class that could draw bubble letters which is also kind of like a very dated 1993 type thing, but like could write, you know, Bob and write Bob with bubble letters or Robert or Tom or Jack. And I would have her, I would pay the kid there, her student to write kids' names on them. And then I'd come in and be like, yo, check out this Patrick snap bracelet custom made for you, Patrick, <laughs> with bubble letters and we'd charge him more. So it's been, it's been a long time. I mean, throughout... I don't know, my first 18 years, I probably had four or five sort of like side hustles that I took very seriously. Like I took them like they were businesses. And then once I was in school, uh, school being uh, college, I went to American in DC. I, I had the audio engineering degree. And the big thing that I saw that I had that no one else had was I had access to a studio for free because it was part of the degree. So suddenly I was like, well, I have no overhead cogs to start running my own record label out of the foundations of this place. The main, pro the main reason the studio fails, which I found out later, uh, is how expensive it is to run the studio. But when you have all the equipment for free and you have a plenty of talent all over a city that wants to come record and will pay you, and at that time I didn't care about sleep, I would just book the studio from 1 to 6 or 7 a.m. when no one ever was using it and no one was watching, and I would have people come in and they'd pay me to record them. And that A grew my ability to actually learn what I was doing. I recorded so many songs, learned. And I was, I, I was agnostic, right? I was recording punk rock bands. I was recording rappers. I was recording uh, uh, singer-songwriter, women with guitars, just making that work. And I got a ton of practice. I got better. And that actually grew into, well, I know a bunch of clients. If I wanted to start my own label, I could. Or start my own studio, I could. And I did. So it kind of naturally grew out of opportunities, um, uh, plugging those holes with time, energy, and occasionally where I had it, talent, and that led to, uh, I guess, a career. I guess I'm a career entrepreneur at this point. So in your case, there are very early indications that maybe this path was something that was right for you. 
Um, but on that point, there are many people that have a great idea. There are many people that would like to start a business, but don't for one reason or the other. What character composition of an individual would you say is ideal for an entrepreneur? So one, you definitely have to have a high risk tendency, right? I I am not of the like glamorizing startup side as much. Um, I think that's kind of a I think that's not really fair uh, to most people. I think it's very hard. It's very high stress. It's very high risk for most people, and most of the time, you're probably risking an opportunity cost that net net during the time frame that you're doing it would probably see you financially more stable uh, or seeking an opportunity that might even potentially make you happier. I think you have to, A, be unbelievably passionate about the thing that you want to do to the point where doing anything else would actually make you unhappy, <laughs> that the happiness of knowing that you're pursuing this thing that you care so much about. Um, it's why I'm not necessarily a fan of people who want to uh, entrepreneur to a problem as in like, I, I want to be an entrepreneur because there's a problem. I actually want you to entrepreneur because you care so much about a solution. Um, and that that to me is a differentiator between why you should do it versus why you should either join a team that's doing it or find someone that cares enough about it that you could be a part of the journey. All of those things kind of align with my long-term feelings around like you have to have the risk tolerance, you have to want it. And I think there's probably some level of, probably some level of ego that also has to be there. So much of your time will be people saying no, uh, or that's not possible, or you can't do that, or maybe you shouldn't do that. There's going to be a lot of that. And when I say ego, I don't mean it in the, you have to have like narcissistic tendencies. I mean it in like, you have to have like a strong enough ego that you can deal with it being crushed and punched consistently. One of the things I always think about is that uh, sort of startups and entrepreneurship and running companies is, it's kind of like a boxing match. It's infinite number of rounds. You actually have no idea when it's going to end or if it will end. Uh, and most of the time you're trying to not get hit in the face. You're going to get punched a lot and you're kind of like, well, that time it got me in the kidney and that time it got me in the rib. A lot of body blows, but hopefully body blows will never knock you out. And most of the time you're just avoiding the headshot. And so that kind of strength of will to be able to do that is in, is an inherent core need. Because if not, you're, you're going to find yourself crumpled in the corner of an office somewhere. Kind of like, why did I do this at all? So I guess in the case of PageLime and, you know, a CMS solution, it's not something that I guess you would agree with this that, you know, you're born with, you just wake up and saying like, you know, I want to create the CMS solution so badly. Like even Fair. in the case of a lot of enterprise companies. So I guess what is the drive specifically in that case then? Were you crazy about that solution? Like what really drove you to start PageLime in that case? Yeah. So that was a combination of necessity being in the market and it was kind of an obsession, to be honest, right? So uh, continuing sort of the storyline down and like you know, narratively syncing this, 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 this podcast together, uh, when the record label and the music industry stuff stopped working, one of the core things we were doing for the musicians uh, to expand and generate revenue was we had gone beyond just music recording. Uh, so we started doing headshots and uh, electric, electronic press kits were hot at the time. Brand and uh, logo identity. Like if you were just a rapper with a cool name, now you're a rapper with a cool name and a logo. Like it's, it's a whole new world. And one of the core things that started happening is we started building websites for them. And as the record and music industry side of the business started to fade away, the music uh, website 
side of the business, like the actual, like we're going to build you a website for your product started to grow. And we started to realize, um, and a lot, at this point it was sort of, I, I was alone in a 2000 square foot warehouse, uh, after losing all of, not losing my friends, but having to let loose of a lot of my friends that were working for the company at the time, uh, that the websites we were doing for the, that same singer songwriter woman or uh, a local high school glee choir, uh, were the same things that we could do for a bake shop or a restaurant or uh, a law firm. They were these kind of five page websites that told a quick story about who they were, what they were doing. And there was usually one or two pages that needed to be updated. And the core thing that I kept running into is that it was impossible for me to charge for my time because there was an understanding in the market of how much a website cost at that point. But what you couldn't realize was how hard it was to make it able for someone to change the pieces of the website. And there were plenty of tools to do it. There was Drupal and Joomla and early WordPress and there's all these things there, but they actually were very heavy for the types of sites that we were dealing with. We were dealing with restaurants suddenly that only wanted to be able to change their specials of the day or a law firm that just needed to add a partner. And it became a huge part of my life starting to figure out how could I get more business so I could pay my rent and with less, with the same, I had a finite amount of time. And this, the content management solution we built was this very simple CMS is what we, we thought of it as that just very quickly went in, would actually physically replace the code on the website through FTP, like the most basic services. You didn't need a database. You didn't need any of the complications. And it took about five to 10 minutes to integrate a page. So on a 10-page a website, you're looking at 100 minutes of work versus uh, at that time to integrate WordPress or Drupal was probably 10 hours for something that was only going to get used once a month. And so I actually, while it seems not uh, like something you jump out of bed, pumped about <laughs> software, a SaaS content management system, uh, when you're trying to figure out how to pay your rent and your gas and you've got a failed one failed startup kind of under your belt and you're trying to figure out how to make it to the next maybe failed one you get unbelievably passionate about a problem and out of that rose a company so the passion was there even if it wasn't where i thought i would be so a lot of the guidance that you hear from vcs today is that you want to focus on an area that you're an expert in focus on a niche problem so when it comes to PageLine, Imaginary Feet, and Omni, what seemingly are three distinct businesses that operate in three different domains, what is the thread between them from the perspective of you, Tom, the entrepreneur? What is the thought process behind starting each one of these businesses? Yeah, so uh, Imaginary Feet is kind of an outlier uh, because the company itself doesn't have a tied thread, but the apps that we built internally all follow a similar thread, which is every single thing I've ever started came from a core problem that I was facing. So while I might not have been a domain expert in content management systems, I was a domain expert in small business website design and the needs of that audience because I was doing it. When we started launching the iPhone apps, we launched a whole ton of apps from, we had an app called Clean Eats, which was just checking for food restaurant scores nearby so you could make sure you're eating at a place that had a great food, uh, like health inspection score. This was a thing that I had noticed all these restaurants started putting the letter grades up and I was like, well, I'd like to eat at places that are better, better quality wise on the, on the, the, you know, the quality and condition of the restaurants. Almost everything we launched out of that, our biggest app at that time was called Frametastic. And it was a picture framing app that was a missing feature to Instagram. And I had started using Instagram and started all these things. And I wanted to be able to make collages and all these other pieces. And my co-founder started building out the same problem. And we actually built that into, I think there was about 7 million users on that product when it was fully scaled out. There were all, it always was something I was dealing with something I was dealing with enough that I, it was an, an itch I had to scratch through through building something. And when it came to Omni, it was the same thing. We had moved 
from DC to San Francisco. We were chasing the dream. We had built out all these iPhone apps and we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do next, but we knew we wanted to play in what we considered the majors. And that no matter what happened, at least we would probably fail up with the opportunity and time that we had to build out here. And the first thing that happened is I moved from a two bedroom apartment in, in DC to a one bedroom apartment in San Francisco at twice the price roughly and half the size uh, with a soon to be wife. And we moved into a storage unit the next day and I started thinking, deeply about not moved into move our things into a storage unit the next day and i started thinking deeply about like what do you actually need like do you what do you need to own what would i rather access there's a boogie board in there and i was like i am not going to use this that often it was kind of beat up and old i still have it and now it's like i've I've, literally i've lived in san francisco for nine years now almost nine it's like eight and some change and i have used that boogie board two times i have now rented from omni and things like that beach chairs and all the stuff that I've actually used. And I still have this boogie board that's just been taking up space across numerous apartments and all these different things I've lived in. And that was where Omni came from. It was just like that boogie board and looking at these things and saying the whole world doesn't need all these things. Is it listed Um, on the site now? uh, It was listed on the site for a very long time. Currently it's pulled because it, it just no one should use that boogie board anymore. It's almost like my memory of why I started Omni is why it's there now. But yeah, you know, I'd like to think that one day I'll boogie board again and I'll rent it on Omni when I do. So you have a very interesting CV in that you've started businesses previously. Omni isn't your first rodeo. What have been the greatest learnings from your previous businesses that you've been able to apply to the next leading up to Omni? Huh, lots of things. I'm, I think there's a, a mantra I repeat in my head over and over, which is that it's it's always people. Whether it's two people in the back room starting something or 80 people in an office or 100 people in a warehouse or all the different things I've seen since starting all these different companies, uh, whether it's a a rapper or an engineer or a small business owner, which ironically was sort of what we're looking at now with the new company and kind of what I was building websites for uh, 10 years ago, they tend to be the driver of your success. So your ability to interact, maintain, recruit, hire, engage, uh, in some cases sell, Uh, a lot of times you're always sort of selling your product or your person or your vision or your idea. They will be the highest highs and a lot of the lowest lows when you can't do those things, when you have people that you care about and you don't know how to you know, either bring the company to the next level or bring them with you to the next level or, or they tell you they're going somewhere else. There's always, there's always all these different things that play out. And so people tend to be the, the learning that I never will, I'll never stop learning about people uh, and I'll never know enough to feel like I have all the answers. And that's been consistent across every single company. But it's also a consistent thing that I'm always going to try to be better at. So PageLamb, according to the website, was shut down on August 31st, 2017, and the homepage for Imaginary Feet now redirects. At what point did you know for each of these two ventures that it was time to move on to something else? How did you approach the decision of sunsetting these ventures versus pouring in additional resources to keep the initial vision going? Yeah, huh, that's interesting. Imaginary Feet, well, well, you know, we can start with PageLamb, I guess. PageLamb, while that was the final date of its service, it had been managed and sold before that. So that was actually the date someone else who had been running the company determined that they were no longer supporting it and they actually migrated all the users to another platform. So that's that was a, before I started Omni, I was no longer working on uh, PageLime. But one of the main things for PageLime was, PageLime was a real business learning, which is, which is unique. We, when I built PageLime, I, I told you earlier that we built it out of just like a problem. And with that problem was I didn't have like a business degree. 
like I'm fully like school of hard knocks here. I knew that I was having a problem. I knew that there was enough people that there was a business there, but we didn't do a business plan for PageLime and we didn't do some crazy market research. We just started building it. And honestly, we grew that business because at the exact same time that we started PageLime, Twitter showed up. And back then, no one knew what was a good or bad use of Twitter. Any interaction was positive. And so I used to just sit there and run searches for anyone talking about web design or CMS. And I would say, you should check out PageLime, which would be unheard of today. Everyone would be like, why is this company spamming me? Back then, people loved it. And we were able to grow that business uh, largely to that number, the 30,000 or so users with almost no spend. I mean, this is unheard of today. It was just us manually grunting through it and then organic growth. And then one day it just started slowing, probably in the like 18 to 22,000 people range. We're like, why are there's not as many people signing up and support has changed and what's going on? And do we have to buy ads? And like, we had no strategy. And it's because when we sat back and started doing the market research in reverse, turns out there was probably only 100,000 people on the whole planet that actually, that like legitimately wanted that service, which isn't bad for two people at 24 in a small closet to run a SaaS business against. It worked out great for us. But when you start trying to figure out, well, now we have to acquire the next 70,000 users and you have 30% of the market uh, and those people have a solution already. So now we're not getting the new people or the people who are like, that they just wanted this problem. Now we had to convince you that the thing that you were doing wasn't good and we were better. And we were, that became a whole, oh, that's not, is that the best use of money, et cetera. And at that same time that we started realizing that, the iPhone launched and the store had launched and we started seeing people go that direction. And we had all these ideas for apps and we said, great, we can be our own seed investors. The cash flow coming in from PageLime can fund all these ideas we have for the iPhone apps. And so PageLime basically became the bankroll for the iPhone apps. So it never got sunset. It just, it reached feature parity for everything it needed for the 30,000 people who cared. As things started to evolve, we decided not to push beyond, right? So there was a moment when we were, we had more users than a Squarespace, right? There's a moment we had more users than Wix just by the fact that they were brand new and we existed. And we could have probably gone and raised money and migrated PageLime into a full-fledged web hosting tool site thing, but we didn't want to. We wanted to build these other things and that was the joy of the entrepreneurship journey that we were on, that we controlled what we did, why we did it, and where we were going. And so that naturally kind of moved in and eventually we actually sold it to a, people, a person we were competing with early on that still had the passion to keep running it. So that's... It never, it never disappeared. It just kind of migrated into its own thing, and we were fine to see that happen. And then with Imaginary Feet, Imaginary Feet was a dream factory, man. Like, we were just shooting. So we had every idea we had, we would spend, I guess the timelines broke down to about three months developing and about three months marketing. And if the apps themselves individually didn't hit the metrics or didn't work, we would just pull them. You know, after about I guess there's 15, there's almost 17 apps when it was all said and done, to be honest. You know, we had six that did okay and two of the six did in that tens of millions range. But there was 11 that just failed miserably. And, you know, we just stopped supporting them. No one was using them anyway. It just was like, these didn't work, time to go. One of the freedoms we had there was that we were self-funding. We were running it. There was no investors. There were no people in that layer saying, like, you have to keep doing this or whatever. So it was okay. Everything was a test until it wasn't. If it was good, it became a product. And if it became a product, it could become a company. Who knew? And so that's how I looked through all of those different changes. It was, it was the combination of the freedom of controlling the entire company as a two-person uh, and at some points three-person team and the freedom to uh, just build the best business that we could. They, they moved when they needed to go. <laughs>
So I think a topic that isn't discussed enough is the emotional trauma that an entrepreneur goes through. Yeah, sure. Everyone loves to say that the highs are high and the lows are low. What did you battle internally or what was going through your mind when you had to go through each one of these points in your life? And I guess kind of following on to that, how has the success or failure of each venture impacted relationships in your life, be that friends or family? Huh. Yeah. I mean, I think the that first one, the record label, was real hard to see that end the studio and everything. I mean, we had built that with my actual friends. It was the, uh, the woman who was the hostess and like a close friend of ours around the corner became like the account manager. Uh, my roommate was like the vice president. One of my close friends who had a, was going for a CPA was our CFO. I mean, these titles meant nothing, but they were all my actual people. And I was, for all intents and purposes, in regards to the company, the ringleader, right? Not just the CEO. And it was uh, very, very tough to sort of let that dream go because it was a collective dream. Like we had dreams of like, we were going to build Def Jam. Like we thought this is what we were making. Um, we had un the same way you would have unbelievable faith in an app or a product you're starting or, or as I have with Omni or all these other things now, I had them in every artist we worked with. It was the same thing, only, in the, only they talked back, right? <laughs> you actually cared about a person. I want you to go to the show. I need to, I need to see you succeed, not just for me, because I want the art to get out there. So for me, the music one was unbelievably hard. It was also hard because music was the place I would turn historically when I was feeling bad and music was the thing that hurt me. And so it's, it's tricky to be in a spot where I could no longer say like, well, now I just want to go make a beat or I want to go listen to something or I want to go record something because like that was actually the cause. So that one was a deep thing. And I was younger. It was the first one. It was like original sin or something. Like it was this first, this first core trauma where I was like, oh, okay, this is what it's like. All right. I don't, I don't know what this feeling is, but I don't really like it. I don't want to feel it ever again. With the other ones, they ran their course. They... You know, they, they ended because it was the right time to end something or because a significantly better opportunity arose that made more sense in the business and we were able to find a place for them to go. It was hard switching. When, when, when Omni started, I had worked with my co-founder, Emil, who I had had my first computer science class with my first freshman year of college. And he then... When I'd started the record label, he built the website for it, even though he wasn't a part of that group of friends. And then when I had the idea for the software as a service CMS, I called him and we started that company together. This was a person I'd worked with already for eight years at that point. And then we built all these things together. You know, we had this moment where he, I wanted to start Omni and he wanted to start a games company. And we looked at each other and he was like, why don't you come like be the CMO this time and I'll do the CEO thing and we're like, I'll start this. And I was like, that sounds interesting. I'm just not really that into games thing. And he was like, well, I don't know if I want to start a logistics company. Like, I don't know if I want to be in the complications of this marketplace Omni thing. And we looked at each other like, is it over, man? Like, is this it? And we had been, it wasn't a friend thing. He's legitimately still one of my closest friends to this day. I've seen him in the last month, but it was like, it was like a breakup. It was like an actual feeling of a divorce, like someone that you had built stuff with arguably by hours awake, I'd probably had seen him more in that five-year period leading up to that than any, either of our spouses or any of our friends or brothers or mothers or family. And you feel this deep thing when you've gone through that with a person. So it's, it was wild to then suddenly be like, I'm alone now. And he has started a very successful games company. He made a game called Duelist, which sold to 
want to say Namco. He's now working on AAA titles over in Oakland. They're building all this amazing stuff. I've got Omni and we've, we've managed to do it, you know, outside of each other's sphere. But definitely that was one of those same things where it's similar to my statement around it's always the people. It's always the people, man. And like in that case, it was like, oh, I had a teammate and we weren't on the team together anymore. And I had all these friends and we we're on the thing together. And it always, th- those are kind of where, where it really gets you. I can, you can recover from financials. Like you can recover from the occasional bad Yelp review. You can do the best customer support possible. You can call customers. Like you can, you can make things right there. It's hard to make it right um, when it's over. <laughs> and like that's what, you, that's what you're left alone sort of staring at your window trying to figure out what happens next. But yeah, it's where you go. So now coming to Omni, you described the inspiration behind the business and the famous boogie board story now, which is not available on the site anymore. <laughs> but how would you put Omni in your own words? What is Omni to you? Yeah. So, I mean, at this point, we're, we're enabling the ability for people to access anything in their local neighborhoods, right? So there's a world in which you buy everything and there's a world in which you access everything. And I don't think it's sustainable for us to live in a world where we're buying and consuming everything over and over and over and over again. There's going to be 10 million, 10 billion people on the planet in the next 30, 40 years. Uh, We're going to keep having to buy the same stuff over and over again. And people want to experience things. That's where the value is now. It's not just that you own a fancy watch or you own this car or you do this. It's what you're doing with your time. That's the real luxury. And what we think about at Omni is how many different ways can we create magic for you to have access to the things that make it better on the time when you're experiencing life. And so maybe that's a day at the park was going to just be sitting on a blanket, staring at the clouds. Sounds beautiful, but maybe there's a spike ball set there and maybe there's a volleyball net. Maybe there's two chairs and a picnic basket. For a minimal amount of capital and a minimal amount of, of effort and energy, you can have a much better time through the use of Omni. And maybe that's the same thing on a day at the beach. Or maybe you're going with a, a newborn child to New York and you need access to a stroller. There's all these places where we think democratizing access and giving people the ability to touch the things they need and experience them will drive better value. And that's that's our whole goal now. And well, the way it manifests is that we're we're powering the ability for stores and local businesses. And uh, I think of them almost as like local experts to actually give you the items that they have, better monetize their storefronts, get better value per square foot, and not always have to sell, 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 or compete against Amazon for every single dollar. Now suddenly there's a new revenue stream for them and more optionality for the consumer. And that's what it looks like. If you're in San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, Portland, we're powering those experiences right now. If you want to bike, bike across the Golden Gate Bridge or bike through Central Park or you know, you want to repair some shelves in your apartment, you have the access to the tools, whether that's a bike or a drill or anything you might need through Omni. So rewinding a little bit to your experience of starting businesses with friends, when starting a business, I see a lot of individuals discuss an idea with someone. They're both excited at what they think may or may not be the same vision. Then they decide to start the business together, sometimes resulting in a disastrous outcome for the business and their friendship. (laughs) What was your process for selecting your co-founders for Omni? And has that process changed over time in terms of best practices that you've applied to this process? Sure. So early on, the goal was uh, I needed strong generalists that I trusted. So people that I felt could come on from day zero and help me go zero to one. I had that with both of my co-founders. They're fantastic people. They put in the hours, energy, effort. They're definitely jack-of-all-trade type folks that could handle pretty much anything that would be thrown at the situation, which is the chaos of the early years or so. I think if I thought through now new best practices I would have added or thought about, I'm now, I would now be a big fan of lower titling. 
um, and that titles are almost completely unnecessary early on. They're a means to an end maybe in a pitch deck. Like who's the CTO? Who's the CEO? There's things that investors ask you that in reality just don't matter. What they, you, what they really want to know is who's the person making the decision around this facet of the business. And the titling actually can lead to a lot of confusion at those times when you start to switch people out or bring other people in or have different optionality for the types of individuals that need to run speci- like specialized lanes in a company. I, I would say that's from the, and that's from the CEO on down. Like, I don't think if I started another company, I would make myself the CEO. Um, I might be the president. I might just be the founder. Um, I might be the head of something. You know, you'd still have a de facto chain of leadership and, and some degree of chain of command. But there was a lot of excess drama in, in things that came about just from having early on titling that eventually just became irrelevant and led to more stress than necessary because people become like, oh, well, if that person's that, then what am I? And the answer is, you know, you're all here to do a job. So let's all just focus on those things. So that would be a learning I would have for, for a future companies. And on the topic of dealing with investors, a lot of entrepreneurs discuss raising a round, but don't even know the first step towards embarking on that journey. When you raised the seed round for Omni back in 14, what was that process like? How did you approach which investors to even speak with? You know, did you have a pitch deck with wireframes? <laughs> what was that? Yeah, that process was wild, man. Um, the first thing I had before I had investors is I had advisors. And I had an advisory board before anyone. And they had a little bit of equity in Omni, and we started that way. And one of the, the core advisors was this guy, Aaron Battalion. Uh, who was the CTO of Living Social. He's now working on a stealth startup that he won't tell me about. Uh, He was an investor at Lightspeed. He's done a lot of different things. And he sat me in a room after, like I talked about this. He's like, I love this idea, Tom. Let's go through the the brass tacks around the situation. I was like, okay, what does that mean? He was like, these are the things you have going for you. You, you You're a proven entrepreneur. You've made some money. You've built these businesses. People know that you can start something uh, and you have a strong network. And I would say... I'd say the, the core thing is like you start building a network now is is the long-term thing, but beyond that. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. Who's going to give me money? And he was like, no one's going to give you money. And I was like, all right, okay. That didn't sound like where this was going. And he was like, these are the things that you don't have going for you. He was like, you're not a white Stanford male engineer. So you just missed four of the five. And he was like, oh, the fifth thing is you've actually never made money for anyone else. So while you've made these businesses and they're interesting and they were like, like cute lifestyle businesses for you and their companies in the name of money was generated and there was a tax ID, he's like, no, you never returned money to other people. And like, that's actually the big one for guaranteed. Like if someone has made money and returned money to someone, they're going to get invested over and over in because that's already a better track record than anyone else. And you don't have the other things going for you. So you're kind of just like this guy who's sort of known, who's built some things, but you're functionally starting at... You're, you're up to bat, but you're not on any base yet. And I was like, okay. So what he actually did is he had me, he was, he had connections in DC. I had been in DC. He, he told me to go back to DC and pitch DC investors for like a month. He's like, I can help you get the meetings. I'm sure you can get the meetings. You've been around there long enough. And he's like, but the, the cool thing about that is that none of those conversations will make it back to the Valley, that they exist in a completely different world. They're investing in uh, defense tech and lobby and, in health tech and these things, and it's not coming over here. They're not going to care about your rental storage, Airbnb, Dropbox, hybrid company thing. And I was like, okay. And he's like, but they're going to ask you the same questions you're going to get asked here. So you're going to get good at this. And so basically I went on a gauntlet. And so for like 20 to 30 days, I was in DC and I did 
20 some odd meetings, almost 30 meetings with every single one of them saying no. And this is the boxing, getting punched in the kidney, not getting knocked down. And I knew they were going to say no. Like none of these companies, none of these investment funds should have invested. Like it didn't make any sense for their portfolio, but they all took the meeting out of a kindness to him or a kindness to me. And by the end, I was better. Like I knew it was going to get asked to me. I, I had refined the pitch deck. I had refined the thing. I, honestly, by the end, I wasn't even showing slides. I was just like, I got this deck. I sent it ahead. You could check it out. It'll be on this laptop if I got to refer to something specifically, but why don't we just have a conversation? That's how my pitches were by the end. And uh, one of the final ones, one of the partners in the meeting they had said no, obviously, very quickly. And they're like, it's a cool idea. It just doesn't feel like a thing for us. Uh, but he emailed me on his personal account after and said, you know, I'd be interested in investing uh, personally. And I forwarded that to Aaron. He was like, you can come back, basically. Uh, and so then I started calling in uh, anyone in my network and the people that should be yes as if I was polished and built. And that's kind of how I, how I raised the round. Um, but there was, you know, just a gauntlet of no's ahead of that. And even then, I mean, it still took, you know, I had friends that turned me down and then said yes. I had friends, like, I had people that I thought would be yeses that were noes and have been noes to this day. And it's just like, you know, you, you start to think like, oh, man, going to make sure that they're never right. You know, like all these things run through your brain. But it's, it's, it's hard. It's, uh, it's massively imbalanced in terms of the way the power dynamic is. Uh, Ryan Graves was another one of the early advisors and he gave me some, inf he gave me like these tips early on. And one of his big tips was that investors say investor on their business card. So they, and what, what he meant by that was that every day, if you're a bus driver and your business card says bus driver, you get up and you drive a bus, like that's your job. He's like, there's no difference. Investors every day want to invest. They get up and they have to invest. If they go two years and they don't invest, they're not investors anymore. They lose their jobs. Like that's the, that's their business. And they've made it. So you feel in this way, you have this feeling that uh, you're coming to them and they're doing you this favor. But in reality, if you have a great idea and a great business and a great company, you're doing them the favor. You're giving them a very expensive, actually, if you think you're building a billion dollar business or a hundred million dollar business or a hundred billion dollar business, you're giving them an amazing deal, which is probably going to be very expensive early on to make a lot of money on money that's probably negligible to them or a rounding error in some of those cases. So you, his whole thing was like, don't go in there thinking that you know, you're asking them for a favor. Go in there realizing that you're doing them a favor and that confidence matters and pump out that kind of energy and that I've kept that with me ever since like every every investor meeting has always been like this is a team thing you're on the team you're on team omni I'm on part of this group with you but we're here because this idea is great and this company is going to be amazing and join join me on this journey and that definitely led to way more success than just like thank you so much for investing it's like saying thank you for you know thank you for just being you, <laughs> that's the thing. Like, thank you so much for having me on this podcast today. But also, you know, I'm a good part of your podcast. <laughs> so Tom, when I first started following Omni, I noticed you were playing in the storage space. And if I'm correct, those assets were acquired by Clutter in May of this year. What prompted the sale of those storage assets? And I'm particularly interested in this question because I'd like other entrepreneurs to learn how to approach the decision of letting go of specific assets to recalibrate the focus on a venture. Sure. I mean, there was no prompting of the assets in a way that was anything more than we were, always knew what we were building, right? And we were building this thing that we wanted to have this access economy piece. And there were a lot of times where we just kept feeling, and I kept feeling personally, that there was this sort of, dis, it's almost like an audio engineering term, but there was like a inharmonic where 
to one group of people, we were saying, hey, store all this stuff that you don't need. Uh, keep it, you know, you have all the stuff that you've bought, or even in some cases, it would even feel like you can buy more, just store it. And then we're going to give you this way that you can make money on it, et cetera. And to what we thought early on was a whole other group, we were saying, you know, you know, you don't need to store this. Uh, you can access anything. And that's always what we wanted. That was the message that we were trying to get, of course. And somewhere we realized that those are the same people. So the same person we were saying, you live in a small apartment in San Francisco and you don't have space for your boogie board, store it. We were the exact same person we were saying, you know what, you don't even need a boogie board, rent it. And so there was this sort of conflict where it was like, what's the company you wanna be? Do you wanna keep going down the direction where we're having this sort of storage conversation? Or do you wanna go down the direction where you're saying, access everything, what's the world changer? And the world changer, the reason that people invested and the reason the original pitch deck was so strong was that we were building this access economy play that was gonna enable everyone to start to have the things that they wanted whenever they need them, right? And this for us was that opportunity to double down on that. We said, you know what, we're gonna be the company that we said we were. We've built out this, we know rentals works, we already see it, we're seeing it through that process. So let's just go all the way down that line. And for us, it was an unbelievably hard decision. It was a not an easy one or not, a, not something that was fast or anything, but it was, you know, who do, you, who do we wanna be? What's the values of Omni? Where are we going? And the company we wanna build is the company we're building now. And now we know that every single person, we can pitch the exact same story, which is, this is a future where the things that you want can be at your fingertips and it doesn't mean you have to buy them. And yeah, it was tough, but definitely the right call. So as the leader of the business, you know your vision for what you want the business to be, but how has that conversation really been with investors and how do you have that dialogue with them of communicating what your expectation of this business is and where you see it going or kind of referring to the proverbial pivot? Have they followed along very easily with that vision change? So I think the core thing for me is I don't think I've ever changed the vision. So I think we've changed uh, how you get there, right? I think there's many paths to an endpoint. Uh, the very first deck talked about, you know, the core thing we were building is Airbnb for everything. That was kind of the, the buzz phrase that was in there, this world where the stuff that people had could be accessed by anyone. If anything, we've changed the machinations on how you, on like what the supply of that might be. Maybe it's not always going to be people. Maybe it's going to be stores. Maybe it's going to be brands themselves. All these different things that we can think about going that direction. But the actual business has always been that same end game. At the end of Omni, whenever that is, if that ever is, you know, the, the positive end is, you know, this company has made it so more people can access things than they own. And it, if we're doing our jobs and we win, it's because they look at us first to do that <laughs> and not occasionally or uh, on a whim. It's the actual answer to that. And so everyone always tracked. The, the, the through line was always still the same thing. Everyone still felt consistently like, okay, you're just figuring out another way to build a mousetrap um, and it's going to take a few to get there. If you look at most successful startups, very few come out of the gate with the exact business model. That's the business model that gets them to hyper growth or to the scale that they want to be at. We benefited from having a model that worked. It just wasn't the company that we needed to have at the end game for what we wanted to be. And so we took the hard steps to get to that. And now that's where we are now. Couldn't be prouder of the team actually. And, and the investors, I mean, everyone's stuck by it. There's no return the money conversations or anything. They're like, okay, cool. Glad to see you're still firing. So what has been the most difficult part of growing Omni? And when you look back upon this journey, could any of those pains have been eased away had you known one thing or the other earlier? I don't think there's any one magic bullet that would have dramatically threaded the needle you know, out of the gate. I knew what I was signing up for when, we, when I started this company. 
uh, everyone that's joined since and has been a part of the investment journey, the operating journey, the employment journey, whatever it is. Honestly, in some cases, every consumer, every person that we've had to use the service, you know, this is a hard business. We're not just you know trying to add a feature set on on daily life. But, you know, we're we're trying to signal a shift. Um, we believe that some of that shift is natural. That that people are inherently moving in the direction towards access over ownership and that people are starting to value experiences more than just ownership of things. So there's a macro trend that we're playing again. We're, you know, we want to ride and ride that wave as it crests, but we also are pushing that narrative. Like we're a part of that. And, you know, in the, my time, is, which has been since day zero of Omni, you know, we've built out levels of complexity of company that entire other companies have built themselves on multiple times, right? So what our warehouses looked like historically were, you know, the equivalent of almost like an Amazon Prime. I mean, we could do same day direct distribution, multi-skew, pinpoint, so I'm talking 15 minute increment delivery across multiple urban markets in, in under two hours, uh, like regardless of traffic, et cetera. Like we built really intense stuff. We had visual tools uh, and have created tools that actually photograph and 3D map every single item that comes in the system. There's, there's whole things that have been on the bleeding edge of stuff that people are working on that were just parts of getting our business up and running to the scale that we believe it can be at. And so, you know, the complexity for me is a part of the journey and kind of the thing that keeps it amazing. You know, as a person who's probably would self-select as a serial entrepreneur, one of the best parts of Omni is that there's always almost like a new company piece to think about every time we try something new. It's like, oh, now we're, you know, now we're powering local storefronts. It's a whole new company. Like I've learned a lot in that time. And, and a lot of the stuff I learned years ago is starting to come into play, how to work with small business owners again. You, you see these things along your path. So in the cases of marketplaces specifically, a lot of them run into this issue of multi-homing or users posting across multiple platforms. How do you think marketplace-oriented businesses can avoid this issue and lock their users in better? So you have to have a power of the actual network, right? So you know, I think the one that you see really often now is like maybe a VRBO to Airbnb where people are multi-listing. Uh, you even see it on driver-side marketplaces where people are Lyft and Uber drivers, et cetera. I, one of the core things we look at is like the overarching value to the end user is can we drive more demand down that pipeline as well as to the store itself? Who Do we have the best supply? And so being able to make sure that we have the and incentivize the people that have the stuff that we know is necessary to drive a thriving marketplace, we'll do what it takes to maintain and keep those relationships. Uh, the, the, the user side might be agnostic. They might be coming to it for different reasons. Maybe they're looking for the best deal or the best thing, or the, or the timing is exactly what they need and it's, up, it's available in multiple places. But for us, you know, we care about quality of supply. We care about the quality of the businesses that we work with and that the relationship that we're starting is a long-term one based around the opportunity that we're providing them and that the quality of the product that we've built itself speaks for itself. And, you know, beyond that, that's kind of what you can do <laughs> to keep the stick there. And the product's been pretty sticky thus far. So what would you like for the future of Omni? Is it, you know, more scale to what you're doing today or is there anything else that you see in the pipeline for the future? There's tons of things, man. <laughs> my, my, my vision board for Omni is, is wide and diverse. I, one of the core things I've always thought is I think we're potentially a better international business than we are even a, than we are a U.S.-based business. That a lot of the population density trends, uh, the feeling of community still tied to, we've, we've 
done surveys of sort of East Asia and, and other places where it's like there, there's like a natural proclivity towards community and the sharing economy and the feeling of having access to things, uh, as well as a growing middle class looking for how they can drive small business revenue. So we're going to see this overlap there of people who can you know buy 15 bicycles and power a bike rental company on Omni and we're giving them the picks and shovels for their their cool business and I will be thrilled when I start to see that like that's one of the, the my favorite Airbnb story is just Airbnb story is one of these stories around it's not the 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 serial or stuff it's that like there was a Airbnb in Havana Cuba before they even were supporting that area these other the sort of unique things and like that's what I'm excited about when when I see that you know, I, I described riding a wave and sort of being on the crest and like, that's how I'll know we're, we're starting to really crest when other people are using it in that way all over the globe. So for me, I guess global dominance is the word I'm saying, but certainly uh, before that, just some degree of globalization of the product will be pretty awesome because the network becomes amazing when you have Omni everywhere. So given your journey and now leading your third venture, do you believe entrepreneurs should jump all in for an idea they may have? Or do you believe it's possible for individuals to slowly build a business, initially as a side gig of some extent, and then slowly transition their focus over full-time as required? So I, I don't, I don't, it's like there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's kind of thing. I, I, I don't have a, I don't have an answer to that that is definitive on either side. I think both can lead to success. And I don't want that to sound like a cop-out. I just mean an entrepreneur doesn't look the same, right? And so maybe you find yourself in a position where you're uh, a young parent and you have to hold down a job to continue to support that, but you have an unbelievably amazing idea that you can work on in the the three hours you have after your child goes to bed, but you still have to work to make sure that child gets fed, right? And if that's the case, sitting here saying, I'm going to risk my entire family's life to start this idea just might not be feasible. And I don't think it would be fair to make them feel like that's the only option for them to start. If that's the case, great. Take those three hours and, and do it until you have the signal that makes you feel that way. If you're, you know, if you have some massive safety net in life and you don't have to worry about capital and you can take the time to dive in head first immediately on something, maybe that's the best optionality for that person. You know, my, my belief is that if you have something that you care about enough that it keeps you up at night and that you want to build and it needs to be built, do whatever it takes to get enough signal to know that the thing that you're building needs to happen and then make it happen. And so if that's a slow burn or if that's an immediate leapfrog, you know, so be it. Just get it done. If you were to offer three pieces of advice to new entrepreneurs, what three, would those three, three be? Three pieces of advice. Three, five, take your pick. 42 pieces of advice on how to start a, a, of being an entrepreneur. Uh, I think start small, but have a big vision. You know, really figuring out what is the, how to, like, how do I, how do I just get on, get up? <laughs> uh, it's, it's really easy to go down this, like, incredible path of what your thing could be. It's, it's shockingly hard to, to cut to what it needs to be today. So in some cases, that is actually the, the difference between if you can build the business or not. Like you can, everyone can come up with rocket ships to Mars as an idea, but getting a rocket ship to Mars means someone has to figure out the piece of metal that goes on the plane, right? So there's those. I think it's very lonely. So if you don't, if you don't have co-founders or if you don't have a, a support structure, invest in a coach early is a good thing or a support structure that's not necessarily an investor, someone that's not aligned, that's aligned with you uh, and not aligned with the company as a fold. Maybe that's a friend. Maybe that's a trusted confidant. Maybe it's an advisor. Who knows what that is? But you need someone to bounce things off of that you know is just thinking about like your mental health. And uh, third, third feels like the one you really need to like drop the bomb. Um, yeah, I think there is a 
depending upon where you're located, I think there is a a glamorization of this of the life. There's podcasts about it. There's numerous tweets about it and Instagrams and you know tons of people telling you about like quit your job, start the company, all these things. And I think it dramatically minimizes how serious this is and how how intense it becomes once you do that. And taking the time to really assess your current optionality, everything on the table, and the degree to which you feel this thing has to exist versus uh, your mental health, your time, your energy, and where it could be better placed. Because there is a world, and like I have this idea for caffeinated orange juice that I tell everyone about all the time, and literally, I give it away for free because like I'm not going to ever build that. But your idea might actually be better done by someone else. Maybe the best thing is to find someone who wants to run your idea and you get 10% and they make you millions of dollars. Who knows? Like there's a, there's a lot of ways to see things come into actualization and figuring that out early before you spend other people's money, all of your time, a lot of your resources and a bunch of heartache could be just as important as the, oh, I'm going to jump in and start this thing. You know, so think through those. That was Tom McLeod, co-founder and CEO of Omni. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.